You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Portland is a baseball town. Our secretary didn't have anybody on the phone. <laughs> there was nobody on the phone. They were just egging me along. So they brought a little short, chubby guy in with the name Peters and put him <laughs> in my place and sent me to double A ball. Two fans, one mission to bring Major League Baseball to Oregon, fueled by Guardian Games and Athletic Field Design. This is the Diamonds and Roses podcast. Without further ado, your hosts, Ben and Dave. I'm Ben. And I'm Dave. I'm Andrew. And I'm Rob Nyer. And welcome, welcome to, to the Diamonds and Roses podcast. We are back again here. we got a full house. Full house today. Yeah. Guardian Games Studio. Thank you, Guardian Games. Appreciate it. Yes. Uh, we have to do a little shopping for Dave and his family afterwards. Yep. Uh, just about everything you want. Assortment of every kind of game. It's a pretty magical place. Yeah. Pardon the pun. I think they have a uh, little costume down there for Dave. With I a, know. Uh, suffers gray beard. Yeah. He'd be, don't cross this wall. Come on. You will not pass. You don't mess with a wizard, buddy. You don't mess with a wizard, <laughs> I tell you. Lord of the days. <laughs> hey. You'll see, man. You'll see. And uh, so we're back here. Um, we have... Super fan Andrew back guest host, again. Guest host Andrew. Yeah, thanks yes. for having me again. Yeah, yeah really appreciate it. Andrew, welcome back. Yeah, Wearing a Portland Pickles Portland hat. Pickles, yeah. Oh. It's a part of the Dove City uh, promotion. Yep. Yeah, I got the black and red bill. And we got you your uh, Rob Nyer. No, not Rob Nyer. Jeez. Rob Nelson signed Big That's League right. Chewback. That's right. Yep. Really cool. Really cool. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, thanks for coming back on with us, man. I appreciate you being here and listening to podcasts. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me again. Let me ask, what did your wife think of the uh, last episode? Yeah, she, she liked it. Yeah, she was uh, interested in like what was going to uh, go on on the podcast. And I, was, I just told her, like, oh, right, this is what we did. And she listened to it, and yeah, she liked it. She's probably like, she wasn't like my wife, who's like, where are the royalty checks? Like, <laughs> no, I go, honey, this is a midlife crisis hobby. Come on now. You know? Yeah, Andrew's she was so excited. Then like today, she was like so stoked that uh, I'm coming back today. She's that's probably cool. like, Andrew, you need to talk more. Yes, yes, yes. That, 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 that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was just waiting for me. It's like, okay, where are you at? <laughs> but, yeah. That's cool. You go there, you're gone for three hours. And yeah. This is all you bring home. Right. <laughs> Fame and fortune. Where is it? That's why we do this. It is. <laughs> hey, Dave, you got a great shirt on, man. Oh, I do. I got the uh, Diamonds and Roses. Uh, got the Diamonds and Roses shirt here, um, representing, and, uh, and again, uh, keeping this thing alive. Thanks. Uh, really appreciate the listeners and the patron uh, patronage and. Uh, uh, again, I noticed you're wearing the same thing there. I know. You can see them on our Twitter feed, Facebook yep. page, whatever. We got them out there. Yep. If you're interested, just let us know. We can see what we do to get you hooked up with one. Cool. Outstanding. Well, uh, enough of us talking. I you know. know. We take it up way old. too much time. We've got uh, Rob Nyer here. So I'm going to throw it over to Rob. Rob, thanks for coming on. It's uh, great. Guardian Games is actually one of, one of my favorite places in Portland. So to actually get to 
do a podcast and come and look at games. It's sort of an easy, easy call for me. Right on. Right on. Well, uh, Mr. Rob, Mr. Nairite here is uh, he he's uh, when it comes to baseball, we'll say this is this is the jack of all trades. This is a true friend of baseball, uh, baseball ambassador. Um, Baseball aficionado, yeah, yeah, baseball aficionado, and just uh, kind of uh, just well well traveled baseball person, uh, and and it's going to be. Uh, I'm really excited for these uh, next couple episodes. Yeah, me too. Well researched. I mean, you can't ask for a person that knows more about baseball to come onto the podcast, and I feel very underprepared for this. I just oh come on, <laughs> but it's great yeah, to have him on. Fine. So uh, let's jump right on it. I mean, we got he's a writer, he's an author, statistician, he's a commish uh, from Kansas City, Missouri. So you went to, you're a devoted Royals fan, from my understanding? I was a Royals fan. Yeah. I, I did get over it ultimately after having, uh, I've been in the Northwest now for Pacific Northwest for 23 years, okay. almost exactly. And at some point between, being away from the Midwest for so many years and the Royals for a number of years, basically doing everything that I wouldn't have done as an organization, it just sort of fell away. Um, which, of course, then came back to bite me when they won the World Series. Yeah, right? I, I can't tell you how many people said, Rob, how does it feel? It must feel amazing. And they didn't realize that I hadn't been a real Royals fan for mm. for a number of years. I, I, I've told this story, but... Um, a few times over the years, but there was really one moment in that entire postseason when I got truly excited about the Royals. I don't know if you guys remember the. Uh, actually, it wasn't even the year they won. It was the year before they won. Right. The year before they won, they went. They were in the World Series, mm-hmm. played the Giants. Which, by the way, just I keep. I'm going to make. I'm, I'm going to 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 diverge from the storyline any number of times. But the Royals reaching the World Series two years in a row, and almost winning the World Series two years in a row has to be one of the more unlikely things yes. in the entire history of the game. Mm-hmm. If you look at what they did in the years before they went to the World Series, and then in the years since they went to the World Series... Complete anomaly. You, yeah, absolutely. People will argue that they planned it that way, that that was General Manager Dayton Moore's plan the whole time to sort of you know, not be that, all that competitive for, I think originally it was a five-year plan or a six-year plan. It wound up being seven or eight years. But but then to get where they were with the personnel they had and reach and almost win two two years in a row, it's just a phenomenal thing. Um, and you could you can decide how much credit to give to the organization, how much how much credit to give to, to Providence, but it was amazingly unlikely what they did. Anyway, the first year they were there, the one time I got truly excited was Game Seven of the World World Series against the Giants. Yeah, I I could have this wrong. I believe the score is either one to nothing or or two to one uh, in the ninth inning. And Alex Gordon in the ninth inning hits this ball that gets past the left fielder and rolls all the way to the wall. Mm-hmm. And if he can score, the Royals are going to tie the game um, and maybe win the World Series. And I stood up. And cheered, but I really, really, what I realized was I wasn't cheering for the Royals to win. I didn't really care. I was just cheering for this amazingly dramatic possibility. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, this is this would be one of the most. I would have felt bad for the left fielder who who muffed the play, but it would have been one of the most dramatic moments 
in World Series history if he had been able to score. Right. He stopped at third, which was the right decision. Everybody looking at it who analyzed it said he would have been out by 20 feet if he had tried mm-hmm. to score probably. But but uh, that was the one time when I truly got excited and thought, maybe I'm a Royals fan. But now it turned out I wasn't. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're, you're a baseball fan. Baseball fan, there exactly. Yeah. Did any, like, anything from your childhood kind of come back? or I, I thought that it would. And when people would ask me, I would say, I won't really know if I'm a Royals fan still or not until they get to that point. Um, and then they did get to that point, and I realized I don't have any – my Royals are the Royals of the 1970s and mm-hmm. 80s. There's still something – George Brett. Deep, yeah. Exactly, and yeah. all the rest of them. I can name all the guys who started for those teams for over a 10-year period practically. Uh, those guys are still in my heart. The, I wouldn't be who I am as a fan or, or a writer or really anything else without that team. But they lost me right around 2000, 2003. You know, I, I think of it sort of as unrequited love, but it wasn't their fault. It's not the Royals' fault that they didn't play well. It just And if I had kept living in Kansas City, I might have remained a devoted fan for all those years. I just didn't. Hmm. Interesting. So very long answer to that question. That was That's an awesome right. answer. Though. I like how <laughs> that wraparound. Yeah. So, sometimes, you know, I think there's a lot more people that it would have a tough time actually admitting that, right? Um, because it's not the it's not maybe the answer that people want to hear, right. but it's well, the yeah, actual answer. That's right. Sure. But sure, it's easy for me in part because uh, I, from almost the very beginning, my writing has always been pretty personal. So I've probably written about my Royals fandom over the years. Mm. So it's not like I can just make up a, oh, they're in the World Series. I'm a huge fan. I, right. I, you know, I probably over the, last, the previous You're 10 car- years I'd been saying, yeah. you know what, I'm not really that big a fan anymore, so I wish I were. It's There are a lot of things to be said for being a devoted fan of a team, mm-hmm. even a team that's terrible. Uh, the low, There are a lot of lows, but the highs are really high. Like right. if you had, in if someone time. had suffered with the Royals for all those years, and then I suffered for in a manner of speaking, about nine years before they won the World Series in 1985 after some crushing losses over the years. Uh, And that felt like an immense emotional uh, moment for me when they won in 85. Imagine if you started following the Royals in, say, 1986, when you were seven years old. Couldn't remember, didn't really have any experience with the 85 team that won. 86 is your first year as a big fan, and for almost 30 years they're it's, terrible they're every year yeah. if you stick with that team and you're there when they win it how good does that feel you know same thing for cubs fans and red sox fans reminds me of being a mariners fan now actually. Well, that's right yeah, yeah. i mean i can I get remember it. i get it yeah. i can well remember when the mariners were very good right um because it was only 17 years ago yeah. right 18 right. years ago 2001 yeah. to me 2001 is not that long ago mm-hmm. because when you're my age 17 years goes by like that yeah, yeah. But when you're a kid, yeah, 17 years is forever. Right. Uh, so sure, Mariners fans. I always read these stories or see these things about long-suffering Mariners fans and thinking, well, you yeah. know, KC, Chicago, or Boston. You that's know, right. Different. Uh, yeah. When you or the the Indians who have right. not won a World Series since 1954. Right. But they've been there and yeah. they've been they have close. Been, they've been close. Yep. Yeah. Yep. A couple times. But uh, well, maybe they'll get back again this year. I mean, they we'll got a great. Team. They got a shot. They've had yep. a, they've had a great shot the last two or three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you grew up in in Missouri. Uh, did you you play ball as a young kid at all? I was like almost every other kid I knew. I loved sports. Uh, you know, for better or worse, we didn't have video games. Yeah. Uh, Pong 
<laughs> was the game. And I, I'm not joking. I well remember uh, a, a kid I knew who lived across the street, the, across the alley from my grandparents. I remember he got Pong. What a thrill that was to go over to his house and, and play Pong. Uh, so there, actually, when I was a kid, there were video games, very crude, rudimentary video games, right. but nothing like what came later, obviously. Uh, so at night, I watched all the television that I could watch, like most of us did. And, and after the TV went off, I read. And the, but in the daytime, we played sports. Yeah. We played football. We played basketball. We played baseball. We played, uh, we played hockey. We, whatever game there was, we would play it because that's just what you did. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say that I loved baseball more than the others, but sure, I played. I wasn't particularly good, um, but I just loved to play, um, and loved to play until I got to a point when I was 12 or 13 when uh, I just wasn't getting any better. And it, it, for me, when I wasn't playing, when I wasn't any good, it wasn't much fun. Okay. So I stopped playing and took it up 30 years later as a guy in his mid 40s, <laughs> um, and also, and was even worse when I played in my, when I was in my 40s. But that's another whole other story. But I never stopped being a fan because even when I stopped playing, um, I lived in, in the Kansas City area, and the Royals. This was when they were at their peak, okay. late 70s, early 80s, basically. And we all loved the Royals. We, everybody in the Royals were incredibly popular uh, in that city at that time. Uh, when you consider how small a market Kansas City yeah. was mm-hmm. and is, uh, it was considered somewhat amazing that the Royals drew 2 million plus fans every season. Um, they outdrew many, many teams that had that played in much bigger markets. And so it was very, it was, and it was very easy to be a fan. So I was obsessed with, with, um, not playing baseball at, uh, ultimately, but but certainly with watching the Royals. I love the Royals. Who's your favorite player on the Royals? I mean, who who are you looking at at that point in time as like a, a favorite player of yours? I think that my first favorite player was actually Rod Carew mm. because he That's was nice. famous. Yeah. When I was nine, ten years old, uh, like a lot of kids, I just gravitated toward who the most famous player was, sure. and there was this like. Sweet spot in 1970, I believe it was 77, when Crew hit 388, and was on magazine covers all the time, and uh, and I had spent some of my earlier youth in the up in, in Minnesota, and was a Vikings fan, and uh, so I sort of had this background knowledge of the Twins, who Crew played for at that point. Um, so first I was a Crew fan, but then as his when he wasn't hitting 388, then I sort of started gravitating toward all the Royals and. Mm-hmm. Everybody's favorite player in Kansas City was George Brett. Yeah, he was the guy for various reasons. Um, he was the best player they had. He sort of had this, this tousled California beach boy looks uh, that that people found appealing. Um, he was intense, right? Yeah, and he was incredibly right. He he learned how to play the game from Hal McRae, who learned how to play the game from Pete Rose. Uh, that was the sort of that was the way Brett played. I mean, nobody played quite like Rose. But McCray and then Brett um, and others, um, they sort of brought that to the table too. So that was a part of his appeal. But you know, frankly, most of the appeal was that George Brett was such a tremendous player. Year, every year he was, an, he was an all-star, a threat to win the batting title, uh, big hits all the time. So we all love George Brett. But and I might be I might be romanticizing my 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 passion for the team. But you sort of loved whoever did something that 
in that moment yeah. or in that year. I remember one year in 1982, everybody's favorite player was Hal McRae because he drove in 133 runs, right. which was a phenomenal number at that time. Yeah. Um, uh, Amos Otis was a fantastic player to watch. Uh, for a while, Frank White, who won gold gloves every year, was my favorite. And I later got to spend some time with Frank, and, and that was amazing. Um, and they had all these great pitchers. Dan Quisenberry was a lot of oh, fun. Oh, yeah, Quisenberry. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I'm sure that as a kid, like a 10, 11, I loved Brett because he was the famous one. But as the years went on and George would have his ups and downs and and uh, other players would have would do great things. Willie Wilson was a lot of fun. I mean, the list mm-hmm. goes on, obviously. Brett Saberhagen for a while yeah. was my favorite. So um, I really loved all of them. If they had a uniform and they played, I loved them. Mm-hmm. Taking a step back a little bit in time, um, with you living in Kansas City, what was the the mentality, or, or did you hear anything like regarding the Monarchs and from Negro League Baseball in that area, and just kind of the impact that that particular team had on the Negro League Baseball? That's a that's a great question, um, and I would say the answer, and I might be wrong about this, but I, I would say the answer is no. We didn't hear much about the Monarchs at all. Now I'm sure if you ask someone who was a little older than I, mm-hmm. um, they would have a different answer because. Uh, Satchel Page, as you probably know, is associated mostly with the Monarchs. He played for a number of other teams, right. but for whatever reasons, that's the team we we associated we associate him with now more than any other. I think. Yeah. Um, and Satchel retired to Kansas City. He spent the last I want to say 20, 25 years of his life in Kansas City, maybe longer. Um, but I don't remember anyone talking about that. There was no Negro Leagues. Hall of Fame or museum when I was a kid. Um, there were no Negro Leagues days when I was a kid like there are now. They, we didn't have they, they didn't have days back then. There weren't alternate uniforms back then. You had your home whites, and you had your road grays, or in the Royals' case, uh, powder blues. Powder blue, yeah. um, and that's all we knew. It isn't like today when you have all the alternate uniforms and the special days and the patches and all these things. So. Um, Probably on some level, I had heard of Satchel Page because I read a lot of baseball history when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. But it really wasn't until probably the mid to late 80s that the Negro Leagues, as more books began or became published, it really became something. I remember there was a book, I wish I could remember the author's name, I know it was a woman, wrote a book, A History of the Kansas City Monarchs. As far as I know, that was the first book written about a specific Negro Leagues team. Hmm. And now there are dozens of them out there. Every team you can think of, the Indianapolis ABCs and the Homestead, the list goes on. But we just didn't have that awareness. But in the late 80s, early 90s, that really began to change. And I remember when that book came out about the Monarchs, I was probably in my early 20s or late teens. I bought the book, went to a signing. a half a dozen or so um, ex-monarchs were there, and I have the book at home, which was signed by a number of them. I remember Connie, uh, I want to say Connie Surratt, that's probably wrong, but uh, I think Buck O'Neill was there. Mm. And I later met Buck at the Negro Leagues after the museum had been built, went and met with Buck, and he was great. Um, but all that was in the future. Um, I wish we had had a, a more awareness back then, but um, when it finally started happening, it, it seemed to happen very quickly. Um, all of a sudden, everybody sort of—I'm sure it was there was a process. I don't really remember how that went, but it seemed like all of a sudden people were aware of it, and they were 
uh, having the Negro Leagues days and wearing the special uniforms and the books started coming out and documentaries were made. Uh, but no, growing up, that I didn't really have any awareness. I knew the name Satchel Page and I knew there had been these great black players, but the history of the monarchs, no, it wasn't until later that, that, that I really started digging into all that, all those things. And how did that make you feel knowing that, you know, this information was coming out later and you didn't know really nothing about it as a young kid? Well, I, for me, it just meant, and this is a selfish way to think about it, but it is the way that I think about it or thought about it and to some degree still think about it. It's, whoa, there's this entire new field of study that I can delve into. Uh, because I'd read, by that point, I'd already read many of the sort of the standard books about Major League Baseball. I knew a lot about Babe Ruth. And I knew who, who won the 1936 World Series and all these things. I knew Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, all those great players. I knew all the names anyway. Maybe I didn't have a deep understanding of who they were. But um, uh, you know, when, when I was a kid, uh, my favorite book was a book called uh, and this was when I was seven or eight years old, my favorite book was a book called More Strange But True Baseball Stories. Mm. There was a series of books called the Major League Library that came out in the late 60s and early 70s. And I owned two of those as a kid and read others at the library. There wound up being, I think, 25, 26 books in this, this set. Mm. How many of those were about the Negro Leagues or Negro Leagues players? Yeah. Zero. Yeah, again. Uh, so all of a sudden there's this whole new thing that I can read about decades of baseball history with tremendous players and stories. And um, so I think as much more than anything, I, I realized, oh, this is an opportunity to discover all these great things about the game that I never knew before. And I've got a pretty extensive library of, for a while I think I had almost every book that had been published about the Negro Leagues. I, I, I couldn't keep up. More, more come out every year. So I've probably got 25 or 30 of them, and there are probably hundreds of Negro Leagues books now. But, but for a while, I was really trying to keep up and reading everything that came out. Um, and that was a lot of fun, discovering this new thing. Very cool. Yeah, that, that's really cool, and I'm, I'm glad you were able to bring that you know, that knowledge and that perspective to it. Cause I, I was wondering as I was, you know, looking at your, your background and you being from Kansas city, I'm like, did he grow up knowing some of the, the Kansas city monarchs just cause of, you know, obviously nowadays how popular that they could, you know, that they either are, um, as a Negro league baseball team and knowing that Satchel page, I think Jackie Robinson played for them one shortly. season, 1945. Yeah. Right. And then, um, and then the, the grays who had, um, God, I can't remember Gibbs, Josh. Well, the Josh homestead grays are probably the greatest major league, Negro leagues team of yeah. all time among the most talented teams of any league, because mm -hmm. for at least one season, they had cool Papa bell. Mm -hmm. They had page they had Josh Gibson. They had, I'm forgetting two or three others. Uh, they had this tremendous, their three or four best players were about as good as anybody who's ever played. And they say Josh Gibson probably was the best home run hitter of all time. People say that. I think it's impossible to know. Um, I think that there is a field of study, as far as I know, really has not been truly engaged with. And that is the it, making a meaningful comparison between the, the competition levels of Major League Baseball and Negro Leagues Baseball. Right, right. I think it could be done. I think some people have fooled around with it a little bit, but they haven't really gone all the way. Um, and that's, for a long time, that was 
in part because the data wasn't there for the Negro Leagues. Yeah. But a lot of that data has been discovered now. Um, and I think you could do the work. Um, frankly, I think there are some people who would do the work, but they're afraid of what they might find. I don't know what hmm. they would find. But if you were to do the work and conclude that the Negro National League in 1937 Overall, the quality of play was equivalent to, say, the Texas League that year. Um, that would that would rub, rub a lot of people the wrong way. Um, and I don't know if that's what you would find. You might find that they that the Negro National League was on balance as good as the American League. I have no idea, mm-hmm. but I think there are some people who um, don't want to do the work because they're worried about what they might find. Um, because nobody really knows. Right. I think clearly the talent level, the top talent in the Negro Leagues was just as good, if not better, than the top talent in Major League Baseball. The tricky part is what about the seventh best player on the Homestead Grays in 1937? Was he as good as the seventh best player on the New York Giants? There you go. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, but you, you can figure those things out. Um, the further from 1947 back you get, the tougher it is because you can't make those cross comparisons, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackie Robinson played with a lot of really good Negro League players in 1945. He also played with a lot of good, great National League players in 1947. So you can sort of start to make some comparisons. The The... the relatively small amount of data you have for the New York League's players makes it trickier, but it can be done. I just don't think anyone's done it yet. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, comparative data points, you know, for that. That would be a, it'd be inter- an interesting uh, doctoral thesis. Yeah, definitely. And I think even if you were to, to go in and look at that data, there will be, there will always be some naysayers in either direction right. about what that statistical analyst you statistically analyze and what you came up with as far as your findings. But, I mean, that is the way that science is supposed to work, though. Right. You do the work. First thing I would do is say, how how good were the Neural Leagues in 1947? Mm Because then you've got a lot of cross-comparisons you can make, or 48. And then start working your way back, all the the while saying the further from 47 we get, the less meaningful this comparison is. Right. But here's what I did. Here's all the math. Here's what I found. Here's my conclusion. Now, please feel free. Tell me where I went wrong. That's how science works. Um, and I think ultimately, whether it's a year later or 10 years later, you could have some answers that you would feel pretty confident in. But again, I don't think that work's been done yet. Yeah, I don't think it has either. No. Yeah. Well, um, you you went on uh, from, you were at Shawnee Mission West High School, younger. That's true. Um, you went on to attend uh, University of Kansas. Yep. Uh, that's clearly close by there in Lawrence. Yep. Um, so what were you what were you studying while you were, t- while you were there at What Kansas was I State? studying? Oh, boy, nobody's asked me that in a long time. I should not have gone to college. Um, I went to college for the sole reason that all of my friends were going, hmm. and most of them were going to KU. So that's where I went. I, I actually had a scholarship offer to... I think it was, I always, it's funny, this is not the sort of thing one should forget, but it was either Oberlin, which is in Ohio, I think, or Grinnell, which is in Iowa. But I went to KU because that's where my friends were going. I had no ambition. 
I didn't have any sort of career goal. Um, I didn't even really have the ambition to get, to get good grades like a lot of my friends did. Um, so I was a lousy student. The first semester I was did pretty well, second semester not so well. Um, I just found, wound up finding many things that I enjoyed doing more than studying and going to class. <laughs> so while you're taking uh, classes that you're just kind of exploring? Well, things. I wish I could say I was exploring something meaningful. Uh-huh. What I was doing was <laughs> watching baseball games and playing ultimate frisbee and, and frisbee golf. Uh, those were the things that I enjoyed. So that's for the most part what I did. Now you couldn't really do either of those things in the winter, but I somehow found other things to do in the winter besides <laughs> go to class. So I had a few good semesters and I had some pretty lousy ones. Um, by the end of my fourth year there, um, I probably had maybe two years worth of credits. Oh man, you had a good time. I well, I I mean I did, but it, I'm not one of those people who had a good time drinking beer and playing pool. There was a little bit of that, but mostly it was just watching baseball, playing frisbee, and on some level feeling like a failure because I knew I was a terrible Mm. student. Mm. Um, And in my last semester there, uh, I didn't even go to my finals. Um, I quit school probably a month before finals and got a job roofing houses. And that's, that was the end of my ambition for school. I had no idea what I was gonna do with myself, um, except, hey, maybe after two or three years, I'll figure it out and go back to school and do something. Um, so I was a lousy student, um, became a decent roofer after <laughs> a few months, not a great one, maybe not even a good one, but, but did well enough where they kept me on and uh, went from being a roofer to working for Bill James miraculously, which I'm sure is next on your list, but yeah, that, that was sort things. of the progression there. Were you still just like following baseball as just a general sports fan at this time, or, or were you feeling like maybe there's something a little bit more, like you're putting a little bit more time doing like other things? Um, you know, I know we had Rob Nelson on, and you know, he was talking about like how we would keep data and he'd write it down in his notebook and he would look at like pictures and stuff like that and like are they throw balls, throw strikes, you know, where are they getting the hits? Were, were you kind of doing a little bit more analysis on these games? Well, than- no, well I, I wasn't doing analysis. Um, I wasn't that smart, quite frankly. Um, but I was obsessed with baseball by that point. Um, I, at some point, my obsession with the Royals turned into an obsession with baseball. Mm. Sometime in high school, as I recall. Um, I think reading Ball Four was a part of that because I realized how interesting the game could be beyond just the numbers or what I was seeing on television. What is Ball Four? Uh, ball Four is a, was the, the, really the, the third autobiography that was written about baseball behind the scenes, oh. what it was like to be a baseball player. Mm-hmm. There had been two in the early 60s, which are excellent, written by a pitcher named Jim Brosnan. They weren't salacious, so they didn't gain a great audience and I'd never heard of them until I never heard of them until later Ball 4 which came out in 1970 was salacious was and uh, was, it, was that Jim Bounds book? Was no. that Jim Bounds book? Ball no. 4 yes Was yes. that? Okay yeah. Yeah. And, and he'd been blackballed Black basically that book. Well I really he was black no he he was chastised Right He fell out of the major leagues in 1970 because he wasn't any good Okay um, and actually made it back so, seven so years later. So a, a bit of a misnomer. Yes, okay. he was hauled gotcha. in to talk to the commissioner who read in the Riot Act 
And which, by the way, guess what? As those things always do, sold a million more books probably because he got hauled in to talk to the commissioner. He's doing the talk show circuit. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, it, but ball four was a part of my, my education. But I just became obsessed with baseball. But really where it, where it really took off for me was my first week or two at, at, at KU, I, I had joined the History Book Club, which was like what it sounds like. Um, every, everybody knows the, the the book club. What are they? Uh, famously, there was, for many years, decades, there was something called the was it just called the book club. What was that called? Uh, where you would basically be a member every month. You'd get a new book, and it could be a novel, could be whatever. Whatever was selling, they would add mm-hmm. to the book club. But for a while, they also had a, a military history book club and a science fiction book club, and they had a a history book club. And I, I signed up with the history book clubs. Every month I'd get a different history book. And by the way, of course, it was one of those things where I wouldn't pay the bill because I was poor. Ultimately, they cut me off. Um, <laughs> one of those immature, call, like the, the, the record club is the same thing. Oh, yeah. used to, you oh, know, yeah. something from my, from my youth, uh, the Columbia Record Club. Anyway, uh, my selection one month in the history book club was a book called Bums, an oral history of the Brooklyn Dodgers. <laughs> so that book shows up in the mail. And... I am utterly captivated. I had no idea, aside from maybe reading Ball Four, that baseball history could be this colorful and interesting. Um, even though I read a lot of books about the history and, and enjoyed it, this was fascinating to me. Um, the, basically, the, the, the book is the history of the Brooklyn Dodgers from the perspective of Dodgers fans. I'd never imagine that you could tell a story that way before. It was fantastic. And the process of them going to L.A. or is it... That's know, at the end it, of the book, yeah. sure. So you can imagine what the Brooklyn Dodgers fans, sure. how they're, they felt about that. Pissed. And yeah. there's a lot of that in the book. And it's incredibly vivid. And the, the book is terribly one-sided. You know, Walter O'Malley is the devil in yeah. this book. Hmm. Um, which is not really fair, but it's incredibly entertaining to hear people. You're, you're, you're getting the voice of the fans, whether they're objective or not, it's irrelevant. Sure. Um, at the same, basically the same moment, I walked into the KU bookstore um, and I browsed the, the sports section and they had this book, the Bill James Baseball Abstract, 1984, which had come out the previous spring, but I'd, I'd never heard of it, never seen it. Um, and I, I picked up the book, I'll never forget this. Uh, I picked up the abstract, probably looked at the back cover, looked at a couple pages, might have read the Royals chapter in that book because there was a chapter on every team. And I was immediately captivated by this book. I knew I had to read it. Bought it, took it back to, to, to the, my apartment, read it the, over the weekend. It was, you know, I couldn't put the thing down. And literally from that moment forward, over the next four years when I was in, uh, an utter failure in college, if you had asked me, Rob, what would your dream job be? It would have been work for Bill James. Um, I just didn't have the wherewithal emotionally to even begin to make a list of the things that one would do if one wanted to work for Bill James. It probably mm. would have been study hard, uh, take a statistics class, um, work on your writing, all these other, I mean, it's easy to imagine now what you would do if you wanted to work for Bill, but right. it seems like such an unrealistic goal to me 
like everything else did basically, that um, I didn't do anything. I just watched a lot of baseball games. So that's why it was miraculous when I actually got the chance to work for Bill because I'd done nothing to earn that chance hmm. um, or work, I didn't work toward it. Um, it just sort of came to me, which is, you know, in, to some degree, the story of my career. Well, Did excellent. You, um, so you might, you might gonna, be selling yourself short a yeah. little bit. I think. But yeah, you, well, you I did learn a few to, things I, to earn. I did learn future. later to study and to work hard. Gotcha. But certainly, I've been very lucky over the years. And uh, but I, I was never luckier than than when Bill hired me. So, did you find Bill, or did Bill find you? Well, it was a little of both. Um, um, among the lucky strokes was um, you asked. Ben, you asked earlier um, what I had done when I was a student to sort of analyze baseball. And one thing that I had done was, one, I joined the Society for American Baseball Research when I was probably 19, 20. Hmm. I might have been the youngest member in the entire organization at that point, certainly among the youngest. Um, I mean, hell, I'm still among the youngest. It's an old organization. But uh, And the other thing I had done was join an organization called Project Scoresheet, which Bill started, um, announced it in the pages of the abstract, and his, his aim was to, for a network of score, volunteer scores, to keep score of every game, um, and not just sort of the play-by-play that we normally do, but also where the hit landed, that sort of thing, so that analysts would have this information now it seems commonplace now obviously right everybody has that information but yeah, at that time access. nobody had that information the only people who had that information were the uh, Elias Sports Bureau which still does that sort of work at that time they were the only ones and they wouldn't let anybody have it unless you would pay an immense amount of money um, Joe Blow couldn't just write to Elias and say, I want to see the spray charts for the, the St. Louis Cardinals, they, they, they would laugh at you if you asked for something like that. So Bill's, I, and Bill wanted this data so he could actually do the work with it, um, have the tools that he, that would allow him to do even better work than he'd already been doing. So Bill created this network of scores. I joined. Um, I also became friendly with a fellow named Mike Cope, who was actually a neighbor of mine, lived only a few blocks away. And uh, Mike lived close to me. He also ran a little bookstall in a flea market in Lawrence. And Mike had a great selection of, among other things, in his bookstall, baseball books. So I would often browse his baseball books um, and buy something when I had the money. And at some point, I don't remember how this happened, but I realized Mike told me that he and Bill happened to be very good friends. And in fact, Mike wound up writing some, in some, writing some essays for Bill's uh, baseball abstract. So. There was a connection there. If I had just been some guy who nobody, Bill didn't know or what, um, I don't think I would have even, I never would have found out about the job. Mike told me one time, he said, Bill's hiring a research assistant, you should apply. Um, my first instinct was, why would I apply? He's never gonna hire me, look at me, we're <laughs> We dropped out of college. Transcript, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a funny story about that. Um, um, so uh, I wrote Bill a letter Bill said, wrote, I think Bill wrote back, he might have called, I don't remember, um, it said, you know, it, oh, the other stroke of luck was Bill lived 30 miles away. Hmm. What are the yeah, odds? Yeah, oh, yeah is, Of all the places yeah. I could live in the whole world, I lived three, 30 miles away from Bill. Um, so 
Bill said, uh, I'll, I'll drive to Lawrence and we'll, we'll, we'll I'll interview you. Um, and it may be, that I think before then, like in the, the, prior to us actually meeting, he had said, I'd like to see a writing sample in your college transcript. Oh, no. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> How about that was my reaction. Yeah. So uh, I'm not proud of this. Uh, maybe, probably a lot of people would be proud of finessing their way through something like this. And there are some things that I've finessed my way through over the years that I'm proud of because I didn't think I owed someone the truth necessarily. In this case, I did owe Bill the truth, but I lied. Um, I don't know if I've ever told Bill this, um, but I just told Bill I had an overdue library book, or I'd lost a library book and I hadn't cleared it up, and so I couldn't give him, I didn't I couldn't get my transcript, <laughs> and he never asked after that to see it. Oh my God! Right. Uh, uh, I so I did give him the writing sample, which was a paper I'd written um, for one, for one of my classes, but I lied about the transcript. And then a month or so later, he called up me on the phone and said, uh, I'd like you to work for me. And that was, that was November of 1988, and I started on January 2nd of 1989. So that's how that happened. I'm probably skipping a detail here or there, but um, I was incredibly fortunate to know Mike and to live so close to Bill and, uh, and fortunate that he didn't demand to see a transcript and fortunate that he, that he, that he chose me. That's cool. Oh, that's awesome cool. story. Wow. Yeah, that's an awesome story. Well, we're going to get more into that in our next episode about your time with Bill yeah. and your other times as you kind of venture on in your career as a sports writer and author. So um, that'll do it for this particular episode. Thank you for uh, explaining your, your, your history and then going a little bit more into some other things that we got into. So that was really yeah. awesome. Some great content. Um, so anything else for you, Dave? No, I appreciate, appreciate the context and appreciate the honesty. Oh, well, thank yeah. you. I, uh, I hope, I know I rambled quite a bit. No, uh, no, I don't, I don't we, we love questions that. that often. So we like that. it's a lot of fun for me. That, that's yeah. what we want the, uh, the listeners to yeah. hear. We Better want, you rambling than us. <laughs> yeah. I can only take so much of grade. <laughs> Come on. <now. laughs> Andrew, you got anything else for this one? Yeah, this is just good stuff. This is uh, really, uh, rewarding to listen to your stories. Oh, the only problem is it's not very inspiring because no, nobody should ever do most of the things that I did. <laughs> oh, it comes with a disclaimer, does it? <laughs> That's okay. right. Oh, good deal. <laughs> All right. Kiddos well, at home? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm Ben. I'm Dave. I'm Andrew. I'm still Rob. <laughs> and thank you for listening to this episode. It will be back again next week with Rob. So you have a great day wherever you're at. And peace out. <laughs>